Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we can come together to worship and magnify your name, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, Lord, we love you. And we're so grateful that you've given us this opportunity on a beautiful Sunday morning to come together with like-minded people to study your word, to learn more of you, Lord, and to fall more in love with you. We just ask a blessing over this time. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way in us and through us. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today, Lord, that we would hear from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, the epistle of John. 1 John chapter 4, toward the end of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some over on the table. You're welcome to get up and grab one, and I won't stare at you too long and um, make you feel awkward. Uh, you guys are welcome to grab one. If you have your, um, they're back there in Oh, there you go. Oh, Amy's you. all over it. Nice job, Amy. Um, if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to take that with you. Take one with you. Those are our gift to you. We want you to read the Word. And with the style that we study, it's best that you follow along either uh, in your paper Bible or if you have a version or blue letter Bible on your phone. Uh, that's a great way to follow along as well. I read from the New King James, so uh, that's what I'll be reading from today. And we're, again, in First John chapter 4. Everybody with me? One of you is. Good. All right. It's more than one. I shouldn't have tried. I shouldn't. Lord, forgive me. First John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. He addresses us as the beloved. He has two terms. John, the, the apostle, has two terms for the people that he's writing to. He either would call us the beloved or little children. Uh, that's, that's the one he uses more commonly in 1 John. But here also, just as a reminder, God loves you. He's here. John's here to remind you at the end of his life, before he sees his maker face to face, one of the things he wants to impart to us is, hey, you're loved. You are loved of God. You are loved by God. And he wants to address us as loved ones, those born of God, to instruct us uh, and impart to us some advice as he's ready to leave this place. And the, the advice he gives is, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Now remember, when John wrote this letter, he didn't write, this is the end of chapter 3, and this is the beginning of chapter 4. That he didn't write in chapters, he just wrote a letter. The, the chapter breaks, the verse markings came much, much later. And so, though we broke at the end of chapter 3 and now beginning chapter 4, it was one continuous thought with, which, what, with what was from before. And so, just to back it up a little bit, the last part of the last verse of chapter 3, this is what he said at the end of chapter 3, and by this... We know that he abides in us, he dwells in us, he lives in us. We know that God lives in us. How? By the Spirit whom he has given us. When we're born again, when we've given our lives to Christ, and we are found in him, 
one of the things that seals that is that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have God himself dwelling in us. Sorry, that's overwhelming to me at times. And, and truthfully, it can be intimidating and frightening at times, especially if I'm going in a direction that I shouldn't be going. And that's kind of the purpose of the Holy Spirit, is to convict us of sin. But we have God himself dwelling in us, and the form of the Holy Spirit, it's called the paraclete, it's the one who comes alongside, it's uh, translated the helper, the Holy Spirit is our helper. And one way that Paul denotes the Holy Spirit is he is our earnest. Now, that's not a word that you and I use a whole lot anymore today, but in earnest was a down payment. It's, um, it was the dowry that a family would pay to a, a bride's parents. It was an assurance that I'm going to marry this girl, and they would put, the, the husband would put money down on it. It's the guarantee. In fact, that's how it says it in the New King James. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says it this way. Um, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him, Jesus, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were marked. You have a a spiritual mark upon you when you've given your life to Christ that signifies you are one of his, which is the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, Paul does in verse 14 of Ephesians 1, who is the Spirit, who is the guarantee, that's the word earnest, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, as we walk this earth, we continue day by day through this life, until we are glorified, until we see him face to face, we have this earnest that has been given to you and I, this guarantee that's been given to you and I, and that is the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us. And by his power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I are able to test the spirits. Think about the litmus test, right? Remember litmus test from chemistry? Any chemistry majors in the room? Yeah, me neither. I remember the litmus test, but that's about it. And a Bunsen burner that you could burn your pencils with and that kind of stuff. But the lit we are able to test the spirits. We are able to determine its validity, um, determine its the truth that it has. And by what he's saying here by spirit is he's speaking of false teachers, false prophets. Note it says at the end of uh, verse 1 in 1 John, many false prophets have gone out into the world. The first thing I want us to note is he says, many. It's not just a few false prophets that are out there. We have to be aware that there are many false prophets. And as we are still in the church age, we have to believe that today there are still many that would teach in error, that would teach in, uh, with error, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us gives us the ability to discern the validity of a teacher. I will say this continually. Don't trust everything that I say. I mean, I, it's, not my, it's not ever my intention to lead you astray, but be Berean in your study of the Word of God and test what I say in comparison to the Scriptures. 
That's what he's saying here. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability in our own self to say, yes, this is right, no, this is wrong. False teachers aren't false because they have everything wrong. False teachers are false teachers even if they have 90% of it right. They're, just to twist one little thing would make it an error. He goes on to say in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. And here's the test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. That's not an ominous word. We, we can handle this word. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. What's the litmus test that John suggests? Does the spirit, does the teacher confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? That's how we judge. That's what we, we need to boil a, a person's teaching down to brass tacks and to say, is this person saying that Jesus has come in the flesh? We need to remember, Christ is not his last name. It's not what's on his football jersey. You know, Christ caught the reception. That's not Jesus' last name. Christ is the position that he has fulfilled. It is the office that he has fulfilled. It can also be translated the Messiah, the one who has come to save. His name, Jesus, Joshua, is Jehovah Shua. It's the idea that God is our Savior. God is salvation, is the translation. And he comes in the flesh in other, it's so critical that we understand that in order to be able to save us, Jesus has to be fully human. I'll say that again. In order for Jesus to save us, he has to be fully human. He who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. We studied it at Christmas time in uh, as we, we looked at the birth of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God among us, God is with us. Now, he is also fully God. There is no one that has ever been like him in that Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully man. The theology behind it, it's known as the kenosis, and it's taken from Philippians chapter 2, and the word kenosis just simply means the emptying of himself. That's what Jesus did on our behalf. It says it this way in Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That's our key phrase. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. Jesus came as man. It says, it uses the phrase, the likeness of man, and we'll talk about that in a second. But we need to recognize, when Jesus came to this earth, when he robed himself in humanity, he didn't become any less divine. He didn't become any less God. Rather, humanity was added to his nature. 
And by the incarnation, him coming in the flesh, Jesus accepted the limitations of his humanity. And he comes in the likeness of man. Though he is fully God, he is also fully man. The word likeness there speaks of an equality or an, um, to, uh, an identity found in, in, the, in that he is a man. Jesus, in order to save us, has to put on the limitations of man so that he could become the appropriate sacrifice. Are you tracking with me on that? It's, so it's the idea of this. If Jesus was not fully human, then we could say, well, he had special power that you and I don't have, that we don't have access to, and that's why, that's why he was able, and we're not. He has to become just like us. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, it says it this way, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He is tempted in the same ways that you were, you and I are. We talked about that when John said it's the, the playbook of Satan, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the three plays that Satan has. Those are the three ways that Jesus was tempted in the desert. And it says, in all ways, he was tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So the test, John says then, is, was Jesus preexistent as God and added to his deity humanity? It's a lot to wrap our minds around and something that we might need to chew on for a little bit more than just this morning. would encourage you to do that. You've got to remember what John is trying to address. And one of the things that he is trying to combat as he writes this letter was the idea that Jesus came merely as a spirit. He didn't leave footprints in the sand. It was the idea that the Gnostics had, that all flesh was evil, and that therefore Jesus couldn't have come in the flesh because all flesh is evil. And so John wants to combat that teaching at the time. It's funny. The things that John was struggling with is that you know, that people were saying that Jesus Christ never came in the flesh. You and I today almost have it entirely the opposite. A lot of the church today is saying Jesus Christ was just a man. And that he wasn't, that he isn't fully God or that he isn't, well, isn't fully divine as well. It's almost, we've gone almost 180 degrees. But the idea needs to be that he is both God and man. What can we take from that as he's combating this idea? What are some things that we would hear today that are in error, that are false teachings? Well, first, there are, there's, there are those that would say Jesus is actually Michael the archangel. Well, that's not the case. That would mean he wasn't pre-existent. That would mean he, he hasn't always been. That, mean, that would mean that Jesus himself wasn't eternal, but rather a created one, and that in that he is, is just a pawn in God's plan. It doesn't fulfill all that Christ had to be. Jesus isn't a created son of God. He is the son of God. He's not a created son of God. And, and with the, the cults of today, with the false teachings of today, that's two major points that you can ask them about. And if you get into an, um, a conversation with them, hopefully in a loving way, we're not trying to beat anyone up here, but to say, is Jesus the Son of God? And, and, and kind of force them into a corner to say, is Jesus the Son of God? You have to use that 
particularly, not a son of God, the son of God. Is he existed? Is Jesus God? And then I think one of the slipperiest teachings of today that has crept into the church that not a whole lot of people pick up on is we need to understand that Jesus is not just the mode that God used when he walked the earth. There are some very prominent teachers today that believe in what's known as modalism, that God is eternal, but that he operates in different modes at different times. Prior to Jesus' coming, he was God the Father. When Jesus came and dwelt on the earth, he became Jesus the Son. And now that Jesus has ascended, he is now the Holy Spirit. And that he doesn't, he isn't three in one, he isn't a triune God, but that he operates in different modes. We don't believe that. Um, not to step on anyone's toes, but that's what T.D. Jakes believes. That Jesus comes in different modes. The, the band, um, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, which they play on the river. They are modalists. They believe they came in different modes, that Jesus, that God operates in different modes. We don't believe that. That's a slippery truth. He he was pre-existent, and God is trying. And so, though a, a teaching doesn't have to be entirely false for it to be wrong, it can have some truth in it. And that's why we need, and that's why we need to test the spirit. We need to test the teaching. He says at the end of verse three, "This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world." Remember the word Antichrist. We talked about this. I think back at the end of chapter 1, doesn't necessarily mean against Christ, though it does include being against Christ, but the idea is it's instead of Christ. Anything, anything that would stand instead of Christ, take place of Christ, and that's Satan's agenda, that's his objective. Satan doesn't care what you pay attention to, what you worship, where, where your affection goes, so long as it is in Jesus. There's, there's two kingdoms, and John is continually drawing our attention to that as well, that there are just two kingdoms. And all Satan would try to do is say, I don't care who you worship or where you worship, as long as it isn't Jesus Christ. And by that, Satan, Satan has the upper hand, the Antichrist, anything instead of Christ. Just as a side note, this is a curiosity to me, and this is something I'm chewing on. I don't know that I have anything to back it up necessarily, um, but it, it interests me. So you take this with a grain of salt, and you can dismiss it when I'm done if you if you want. Okay. Satan, our adversary, is not omnipotent, meaning he doesn't have all power. He's not omniscient, meaning he doesn't have all knowledge. So here's my thought. Our adversary doesn't yet know when Jesus is going to return. We know how the scene is going to unfold and that Antichrist, the Antichrist, will come on the scene. A man will fulfill the role of Antichrist in the last days. I don't know that Satan is aware of when that will happen. And therefore, every generation that exists has someone in it who could possibly be the Antichrist. Like I said, take it with a grain of salt. But perhaps that would lend itself to some of the evil people we've had in the world throughout the history. I don't know. Like I said, 
It's something I get to chew on every once in a while. Just go, huh. Maybe that's, maybe Satan was parlaying this person so that he could be in position should Jesus return at this time. There you go. Take it or leave it. Moving on. Verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, if you're a student of the scripture, you probably have that one underlined. That's one we quote often. You'll find that on the coffee mug at Lifeway. You'll find that on the bumper sticker of the Christian car. He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And it's a great verse. We have overcome them, it says, the false teachers. And I want us to recognize it's not by our own strength that we overcome them. It's not in our own spirit that we overcome them. It's by the spirit who is dwelling in us, by that earnest that has been given to us. But we are able to overcome false teaching. Uh, falsehoods. Think of it this way. When a fortress has a massive wall set around it, these impenetrable things, it's a relatively safe place. And rather than an enemy coming to that fortress and trying to invade it, what would they do? They would lay siege to it. Familiar with the term? In other words, they would surround the fortress they wouldn't let anything go in. They wouldn't let anybody come out. And you were holed up in, inside the fortress. And what they were doing by that was waiting until your stores were worn out. Uh, your stores were exhausted. You ran out of food. And then, ultimately, eventually, when people had nothing left to eat, they would surrender themselves. And so they would lay siege and just wait it out. What we have in Christianity is a strong fortress where we don't have to build up our walls because our resources are without limit. He can lay siege against us all he wants, but our resources in Christ are without limit. The key to victory in Christ is not necessarily erecting massive thick walls to protect us from the attack of the enemy, but to realize that the one inside of us is greater than any attack that could be mounted against us. Say it again. The key to victory in Christ is not to erect massive thick walls to protect us from the attack of the enemy, but to realize that the one inside of us is greater than any attack that could be mounted against us. He says in verse 5, they are of the world. The false teachers. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warns the young Timothy, Hey, a time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have, I love this term, itching ears, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be able or be turned aside to fables. Why are false teachers successful? Because the world wants to hear them. It's soothing to the ear. It's pleasing to me. And so I, I, I want to heap them up upon myself. And, and so they will always have a room for success in this world because people have itching ears. John contrasts that, and he says, verse 6, we are of God. 
He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, John has contrasted the two kingdoms several different ways throughout this epistle. Lightness, or light and darkness. Good and evil and truth and error. But we need to remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The light is greater than the darkness. The good is greater than the evil. The truth is greater than the error. It's never a, it's never a battle. In fact, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Jesus already has the victory. He has already won. He has always already defeated our greatest enemy, which is death. He, he has beaten death. That is our greatest foe. He has overcome, and so we don't fight for that victory. We fight from that victory. And then he, John almost turns a corner here. you got to remember he's 90, and, 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 and he's just trying to get everything out of his brain at this point before he goes and sees his king. But I think they, the, the two ideas of this chapter tie together well. He almost, it almost sounds like a right turn. We're talking about false teachers and, and walking and knowing the spirits and testing the spirits. And then he says, beloved, let us love one another. Wait, what, John? <laughs> we're, oh, we're over here now. Okay. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You and I can test the spirits because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. How do we know that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us? Because we love. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Right? Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love. And if you were in Sunday school, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably memorized the whole list. You probably had a song that goes along with it and a flannel graph and everything. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, gentleness, self-control, right? Remember all those? The way the grammar is written is, I think, there was intended to be a period after the fruit of the, of the, fruit of the Spirit is love. Period. And then the idea would be, love is manifested in joy. Love is manifested in peace. Love is manifested in gentleness and meekness and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love. How do you know that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you? You love in a way that you've never loved before. You care for people in a way that you've never cared for people before. It's speaking of what we talked about last week, this agape love. Self-sacrificing love. And we need to understand that kind of love is not natural. It's supernatural. And it's only possible by the Spirit inside of us. This agape love that I talk about, or we're talking about quite a bit, as John is the apostle of love, is supernatural. The way I liken it is the, the having the last piece of chocolate cake. Most of you have heard me share this before. There is one piece of chocolate cake left, and you, or I, you and I are in the room. Now, I love chocolate cake. Right? We use the word love to mean a lot of different things, don't we? We love chocolate cake, we love our wife, we love football, but we don't love our wives the way we love football. If we do, we sleep on the couch. Right? It's two different kinds of love. That's the only word we have in the English language. 
the love we're talking about is a self-sacrificing love so that there's one piece of chocolate cake left, you and I there, in my agape love for you, I'm going to let you have the chocolate cake. It's, it's putting others in front of myself. And I know that's dumbed down and simplified, but that, that's how I can picture it in my mind. It's me taking care of you before I take care of myself. Making, me making sure I ha you have what you need before I settle myself down. It's putting ourselves last. The way my pastor always said it, it's others-centered. We're focused on other people rather than focusing on ourselves. And here's a kicker. Agape love doesn't expect reciprocation. I'm going to love them so that they love me back. Agape love doesn't expect that. That's not selfless. I'm going to love so that I get something back. That's selfish. That's, that's, that's not the agape love that we're talking about. And it is supernatural in that we have a tendency to want to put our flesh first, yes? But in him, we have the ability to say, no, I'll take the back seat. No, I'll let you have the last piece of cake. No, I'll make sure that your needs are met in front of my own. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, made, made real toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son, not a son of God, the son of God, into the world that we might live through him. The scriptures will continually point us to Jesus as our ultimate example of love. It's interesting to note that the scriptures also continually point us to the ultimate example of Jesus in forgiveness. But specifically here, he becomes the ultimate example of love. The greatest example of agape love that has ever happened is God himself becoming one of us, taking the position of a bondservant, which that word blows my mind away every time I say it. The, a bondservant was a servant by choice. It was somebody that, who didn't have to be a servant. It was somebody who made the choice to become a servant. And Jesus became a servant, a bond servant. He chose to do this, and he died a criminal's death. And through the, uh, his victory over the grave, you and I might have life as well. That is the ultimate example of this agape love that John is referring to. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him, because he defeated our greatest enemy. I love verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. You guys were with us a few weeks ago. I still have that $5. Anybody use the word propitiation in their language this week? Nope, me either. <laughs> I'm holding on to my five bucks. <laughs> It's just not a word we use all that commonly, right? It is, the word means the, the satisfaction of the debt. It is the, the absorption of the wrath of God. He became the satisfaction of our debt, of our sins. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Sometimes we want to make a big deal about us loving God. Oh, I love God. 
Oh, I just love him. He's so wonderful. Good. You should do that. He is wonderful. It's not a big deal that you love God. The big deal is God loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's mind-blowing love. It's not a huge deal that you love him. We should love him. He loves us. I love it in the King James, verse 10. It, in, the, in the New King James, it says, in this is love. In the, in the King James, it says, herein is love, or here is love. Which reminds me of a song that we used to sing um, back at our old church. Um, just simply called Here is Love by Matt, Matt, Matt Redman. It's actually a, a rendition of the, of the old hymn. Here is love. I'm going to read the lyrics for you. This is God. That God loves us. And here, here is what he says. Or here is the song. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Verse 2. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flow the vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers flow incessantly from above without ceasing. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. And then Matt Redmond added the bridge, which is just simply, no love is higher. No love is wider. No love is deeper. No love is truer. No love is like your love, O oh God. It's not that we love God, though that is a blessing to you and I as well, that we have the opportunity but it's the fact that God loves us. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to absorb the wrath that you and I deserve. And then he says, and he challenges us, Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You and I, as followers of Christ, are to respond to the love that's been given to you and I by acting in the same manner. What do I mean? Die. That's what Jesus did. That's the ultimate example of love on our behalf, is Jesus came and died for us. And John says, when you do the same thing, die to yourself. Love them more than you love yourself. Respond in the same way. It's the principle of Matthew chapter 18. Whenever I meet with a couple for premarital counseling, we study Matthew chapter 18, 19, and 20. And the parable of forgiveness that Jesus gives is a, is a great example. And it's the principle that he's referring to here. You guys are familiar with the story. I believe that um, this man had a $16 million debt. And the, the one whom he owed the debt to comes to him and says, hey, um, you got any of that money? Oh, yeah, I'm working on it, man. I'm sorry. I just, I, you know, fell a little short this weekend. The, the paycheck wasn't as big as I thought. I'll get it back to you. I promise I will. And the owner, of the, the, the master, the one who has, or the debt is owed him, he says, you know what? I love you. I'm going to forgive the debt. Just, just cancel it out altogether. Your $16 million, tear up the, the, the paper, 
throw it away, we'll get rid of it. Wow, what incredible love that you have for me. What, what mercy and grace that you've given me. And then he goes and he leaves that situation and he goes to one of his co-workers who owes him 16 bucks. Hey man, you owe me 16 bucks. I bought you those four monsters, you know, to keep you awake while we're at work. You owe me 16 bucks. Where's my money? Oh man, my paycheck's coming. Just give me, give me a No, you pay me now. And he has the guy, his brother, thrown into debtor's prison. The idea that he wasn't be, wouldn't be see his family until he had paid off the debts. The master hears about it and says, hey, um, you remember that paper that's over here in the fire? That, that paper of $16 million debt? Oh, yeah, thank you. That was so nice of you. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, well, um, you, what just happened with this guy? Well, he owes me 16 bucks. Yeah, but you owe me 16 million. I forgave you that debt. Why can't you forgive your brother of his $16 debt? And the same idea is what John is driving at here. If we have been loved by God in the magnitude that you and I have, that so much so that Jesus came and took our, our burden, took our sin, took our, our portion of wrath, and we're loved in that way, then we should love one another in the same. We should care for one another in the way that he has cared for us. Is it really time for quote? Okay. A little more rapidly now. Verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior, that's the word Christ, of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, well, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed that the love of God, or that the love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. It almost sounds like the ramblings and the repetition of an old man. <laughs> Yet it's the inspired word of God. And God brings it to our attention in repetition and perhaps the ramblings of an old man because you need to hear it again. <laughs> I need to hear it again. And when the Bible takes the time to repeat itself, it's important and it's, it's intentional so that you and I can hear it yet again. You abide in him, he abides in you. You have the Holy Spirit, you're able to test the spirits. If he has loved you, you are to love others in the way that he has loved you. We need to hear it over and over and over again. In fact, if you'll notice, this message today is very similar to the one that I gave last week. Why? Because we need to hear it over and over again. That we are called to love in the way that he has loved us. He says in verse 17, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. You and I have the seal of, the the um, or the the um, dowry the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for earnest. earnest thank you it slipped my mind we have the earnest of the Holy Spirit as our seal hey I even have it in my notes right there if I just read it <laughs> <laughs> I <love> that. <laughs> we have the Holy Spirit as our seal our earnest and in that 
you and I can have boldness that we will pass through the day of judgment. We don't have to worry if we're good enough. Because you're not. You don't have to worry about that day, the judgment seat of Christ, as to whether or not you're good enough. In and of your own strength, you are not good enough. But we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. And when we face that day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus himself will step in before God pours out his wrath on us once again and say, no, Dad, my blood, my blood bought him. My blood purchased him. He's been marked with the Holy Spirit. We see the mark, and therefore we are forgiven. And in that, we have, don't have to worry as to whether or not we're good enough. Verse 18 is very familiar. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Perfect love casts out fear. How? When we truly believe that God loves us, we can have confidence that whatever happens to us is best for us. When we truly believe that God loves us, we can have confidence that whatever happens to us is what's best for us. Sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. The IRS declares that you owe this much. The doctor has news and you need to call him right away. We uh, know a family, friends, friends of Michelle's that we've known for a long time. They adopted six or seven children from all over the globe. Fantastic family. Got word this week that the young man, the husband, Brian Shaw is his name, has a brain tumor. They're currently in surgery right now, hoping to remove it. They don't know if it's cancerous. Um, Amy has just been asking that we pray that it's a, there was a 3% chance that this tumor was just an abscess. And so they're, they're asking for prayer that it is just an abscess. How could that happen to a godly family like my friends, the Shaws, and we say that's what's best for us? I know it's drawn them closer to the Lord than they've ever been before. They're living moment by moment in his presence. I know it's drawn them together as a family, watching all the kids at the hospital, surrounding the dad with love and tears. And I know it's brought the community of their friends closer together, seeing three or four hundred comments on Facebook saying, we're praying, we're praying, three percent, three percent, we're praying. If we lose the job, if the IRS declares, if the doctor says, when you are sure of God's love for you, you don't have to fear. The world's greatest fear should be the judgment seat of Christ. It shouldn't be the loss of a job or the loss of a husband or wife or the loss of anything. Our greatest fear, the world's greatest fear, should be the judgment seat of Christ because that is the matter of eternity. But for you and I, those found in Christ, it's not a place of fear because of the love given to us through Jesus. Perfect love casts out that fear. We don't need to fear the judgment seat. We love him, it says in verse 19, because he first loved us. 
We respond to the love given to us by doing the same, by loving. Just to finish up the chapter, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Pretty straightforward. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. In other words, our words and our actions need to line up. It's easy for you and I to say, I love God. It's a, we close the service by saying, I love you, Lord. You guys have learned it and you're familiar with it, and it's easy to come off the lips. It's easy for us to say we love God, but is there evidence of that love in the way that we care for our brothers and sisters? Is the Spirit acting supernaturally in us and through us and showing the world a way to love that is different than they've ever seen before? Is there evidence of that love in the way that we care for our brothers and sisters? Challenging words from John as he's getting ready to depart this earth. May our words and our actions line up. Amen? Amen. Um, we're going to stand and pray here just in just a second, and then we'll sing I Love You, Lord. And then today I wanted to do something just a little bit different. It seems like we're cleaning up in record time, which is wonderful. Um, I want to take some time after we sing to offer prayer. If there's anybody that would like to have prayer, we're going to have a couple people up here with some music playing, just so if you want prayer, just come forward and, and let us pray for you. If you're okay and you're set and you're like, ah, I don't need that today, or, or I'm okay right now, then just hang out, maybe go get a cup of coffee or a donut, um, check out the, the children of Seti Infa, um, fellowship quietly, and then at 12.30, which is about 10 minutes, that's when we'll start to clean up. So don't clean up right away, let's just hang out, enjoy the fellowship, uh, and if you need prayer, encourage you to come forward so you can do prayer. All right, let's stand and we'll, we'll pray again. God, we thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy poured out through your Son, Jesus Christ. In this, that we know that you love us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. What a glorious thought. Too marvelous for words, Lord. Here is your love. It is vast as the ocean. Your grace and your mercy, an incessant river. And in the way that you have loved us, Lord, you're commanding us to love our brothers and our sisters in like manner. And we confess in our own strength that we are unable to do that, Lord. But in the power of your Holy Spirit, the earnest that you've given us, we are able. So give us that strength. Help us to go forward in you, Lord, and to sing that we love you, but to do more than just sing it, that with our lives we would show it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.